Hello, my friends. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut, Bluebeard, online book club. I don't know how many of you are out there. I'm hoping we're at least in double digits. But we're going to continue today. We left off last time sort of midway to three-quarters of the way through chapter one. And I'm going to continue from there. So here we go. Bluebeard. Edith had no children by her first husband, and she was past childbearing when I transmogrified her from being Mrs. Richard Fairbanks Jr. into being Mrs. Rabo Karabikian instead. So we were a very tiny family indeed in this great big house, with its two tennis courts and swimming pool, and its carriage house and its potato barn, and its 300, ye- 300 yards of private beach on the open Atlantic Ocean. One might think that my two sons, Terry and Henri Karabikian, whom I named in honor of my closest friend, the late Terry Kitchen, and the artist Terry and I most envied, Henri Matisse, might enjoy coming here with their families. Terry has two sons of his own now. Henri has a daughter. But they do not speak to me. So be it, so be it, I cry in this manicured wilderness. Who gives a damn? Excuse this outburst. Dear Edith, like all great earth mothers, was a multitude. Even when there were only the two of us and the servants here, she filled this Victorian ark with love and merriment and hands-on domesticity. As privileged as she had been all her life, she cooked with the cook, gardened with the gardener, did all our food shopping, fed the pets and birds, and made personal friends of wild rabbits and squirrels and raccoons. But we used to have a lot of parties, too, and guests who sometimes stayed for weeks, her friends and relatives mostly. I have already said how matters stood and stand with my own few blood relatives, alienated descendants all. As for my synthetic relatives in the army, some were killed in the little battle in which I was taken prisoner and which cost me one eye. Those who survived, I have never seen or heard from since. It may be that they were not as fond of me as I was of them. These things happen. The members of my other big synthetic family, the abstract expressionists, are mostly dead now, having been killed by everything from mere old age to suicide. The few survivors, like my blood relatives, no longer speak to me. So be it! So be it! I cry in this manicured wilderness. Who gives a damn? Excuse this outburst. All of our servants quit soon after Edith died. They said it had simply become too lonely here. So I hired some new ones, paying them a great deal of money to put up with me, and all the loneliness. When Edith was alive and the house was alive, the gardener and the two maids and the cook all lived here. Now only the cook, and as I say, a different cook, lives in and has the entire servants' quarters on the third floor of the L to herself and her 15-year-old daughter. She is a divorced woman, a native of East Hampton, about 40, I would say. Her daughter, Celeste, does no work for me, but simply lives here and eats my food, and entertains her loud and willfully ignorant friends on my tennis courts, and in my swimming pool and on my private oceanfront. She and her friends ignore me as though I were a senile veteran from some forgotten war, daydreaming away what little remains of his life as a museum guard. Why should I be offended? This house, in addition to being a home, shelters what is most important, the most important collection of abstract expressionist paintings still in private hands. Since I have done no useful work for decades, what else am I really but a museum guard? And just as a paid museum guard would have to do, I answer as best I can the question put to me by visitor after visitor, stated in various ways, of course. What are these pictures supposed to mean? 
These paintings, which are about absolutely nothing but themselves, were my own property long before I married Edith. They are worth at least as much as all the real estate and stocks and bonds, including a one-quarter share in the Cincinnati Bengals professional football team, which Edith left to me. So I cannot be stigmatized as an American fortune hunter. I may have been a lousy painter, but what a collector I turned out to be. Chapter 2 It has been very lonely here since since Edith, Edith died. The friends we had were hers, not mine. Painters shunned me since the ridicule my own paintings attracted and deserved encouraged Philistines to argue that most painters were charlatans or fools. But I can stand loneliness if I have to. I stood it when a boy. I stood it for several years in New York City during the Great Depression and after my first wife and two sons left me in 1956 and I gave up on myself as a painter. I actually went looking for loneliness and found it. I was a hermit for eight years. How's that for a full-time job for a wounded vet? And I do have a friend who is mine, all mine. He's the novelist Paul Schlesinger, a wounded World War II geezer like myself. He sleeps alone in a house next door to my old house in Springs. I say he sleeps there because he comes over here almost every day and is probably on the property somewhere at this very moment, watching a tennis game or sitting on the beach staring out to sea or playing cards with the cook in the kitchen or hiding from everybody and everything and reading a book where practically nobody ever goes on the far side of the potato barn. I don't think he writes much anymore, and as I say, I don't paint at all anymore. I wouldn't even doodle on the memo pad next to the downstairs telephone. A couple of weeks ago, I caught myself doing exactly that, and I deliberately snapped the point off the, the pencil, broke the pencil in two, and I threw its broken body into a wastebasket, like a baby rattlesnake which had wanted to poison me. Paul has no money. He eats supper with me here four or five times a week and gobbles directly from my refrigerator and fruit bowls during the daytime, so I am sure his primary... So I am surely his primary source of nutriment. I have said to him many times after supper, Paul, why don't you sell your house and get a little walking around money and move in here? Look at all the room I've got. And I'm never going to have a wife or a lady friend again, and neither are you. Jesus, who would have us? We look like a couple of gut-shot iguanas. So move in. I won't bother you and you won't bother me. What can make more sense? His answer never varies much from this one. I can only write at home. Some home with a busted refrigerator and nobody ever there but him. One time he said about this house, who could write in a museum? Well, I am now finding out if that can be done or not. I am writing in this museum. Yes, it's true. I, old Rebo Karabikian, have disgraced myself in the visual arts. I'm now having to, am, am now having a go at literature. A true child of the Great Depression, though... Playing it safe, I'm hanging on to my job as a museum guard. What has inspired this amazing career change by one so old? Cherchez la femme. Uninvited, as nearly as I can remember, an energetic and opinionated and voluptuous and relatively young woman has moved in with me. She said she could bear seeing and hearing me do absolutely nothing all day long, so why didn't I do something, do anything? If I couldn't think of anything else to do, why didn't I write my autobiography? Why not indeed? She's so authoritative. I find myself doing whatever she says I must do. During our 20 years of marriage, my dear Edith never once thought of something for me to do. In the army, I knew several colonels and generals like this new woman in my life, but they were men, and we were a nation at war. Is this woman a friend? I don't know what the hell she is. All I know 
is that she isn't going to leave again until she's good and ready and that she scares the pants off me. Help. Her name is Sir Sperman. That's it for today, guys. We're going to stop again midway through the chapter. I, I will endeavor to bring us to chapter's ends in future readings. And I look forward to reading for you again soon. Be well. Onward.